Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello and welcome to our program. I'm here with co-host B.T. Newberg and our very special guest, Donald A. Crosby. Dr. Crosby is Professor of Philosophy Emeritus of Colorado State University, where he taught for 36 years. His main research interests are in the areas of religious naturalism, metaphysics, American philosophy, and philosophy of religion. His latest published book is Nature as Sacred Ground, A Metaphysics for Religious Naturalism, from SUNY Press. You can get that book and many other of his books through the Society's Amazon store, which is linked on this episode's page of our website at spiritualnaturalistsociety.com or through major booksellers. He has recently completed and had accepted for publication two new book manuscripts, Consciousness and Freedom, The Inseparability of Thinking and Doing, and The Extraordinary in the Ordinary, Seven Types of Everyday Miracle. He and another colleague are editing and proposing for publication a handbook for religious naturalism. Crosby uses the term religion of nature as a, as the label for the version of religious naturalism he explicates and defends. Welcome, Dr. Crosby, and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I've, I've read that you attended seminary and were a Presbyterian minister for a time. I was for three years a full-time Presbyterian minister in Delaware, and after that, while attending graduate school at Union Theological Seminary in New York and Columbia University, I was the assistant minister at a church in Connecticut, and I went up two days a week to serve in that capacity. But after that, I became a professor of philosophy and have taught that ever since. So as I understand it, you would have been a minister then during the late 60s. Was it hard being a minister in the midst of that cultural liberation and upheaval? And how much did that time in that era play a role in the broadening of your thoughts? Interesting. I was yeah. actually a full-time minister in 1956 to 1959, oh. and then the assistant minister into 1962. So I was not part of that later 60s um Activity. <laughs> okay. It's very much a part of it at the university where I taught in Colorado. I remember looking outside my window one time on the third floor, and beneath my building and the library, there were six completely stark naked, buck naked kids running with protesting the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. Very nice. <laughs> so you would have been, though, you would have been coming out of the sort of civil rights era, though. That would have been the 50s, right? Uh, the 50s uh, was the beginning of the civil rights era, but it hit its high point about 1964. And uh, a lot of the churches here in Tallahassee went through a big uh, crisis of integration at that time. Mm. And uh, the Methodist church that I presently attend uh, uh, another group broke off from that church over the civil rights issue about 1966, I believe it was. A race issue then? Yes, it was a race issue. I see. Interesting. So the Presbyterians today are having a similar sort of rift about the uh, 
gay rights issue. Yes. It's interesting. So uh, before we get into the religion of nature, I always like to, um, anytime anyone is talking about religion, I always like to begin with, what do you mean by religion? What is religion? Because that word is so ambiguous ambiguous, and uh, so differently used by many different people. So I think it's important for us to establish that first. Um, so how do you use the word? What do you mean when you say religion? Well, I like uh, Paul Tillich's definition of religion as ultimate concern about the ultimate, whatever one regards as ultimate in one's own life and in the universe would be one's religion. Uh, To the extent that one lives in relation to that ultimate and responds to it with deep-felt religious Mm -hmm. commitment. Now, one of the uh, questions that we were possibly going to discuss is the relation between religion and spirituality. And this question is often raised. I tend to think of spirituality as the personal way in which one individually lives religiously. And it's the felt quality of one's life that is spirituality. And it is what is recognized in one as deep-felt religious commitment. Religion, on the other hand, tends to be identified more with uh, traditions and institutions and collectivities, things of that sort. So I think it's possible to be spiritual without being religious in that institutional sense, but you can't really be religious without being spiritual in the personal sense. Because the spiritual is the individualized expression and experience. Of yes, that's right. The, and the felt quality of one's religious life and practice. So I signed up for the way you described it there, the way you break down the two um, categories. That, that's about what I would probably say. But then if you describe uh, what you talk about in your books as a religion of nature, Um, Does that still include the personal spiritual aspect that you're talking about, or is it focused more on traditions, if you're calling it the religion of nature, or how does that work? Well, I call it religion of nature. It certainly includes spirituality. Spirituality is a very fundamental part of it. Uh, It has to do with one's attitudes, one's outlook, one's convictions, one's practices, all of which relate to nature as religiously ultimate. So if I profess uh, religious ultimacy in nature and don't have any spiritual quality in my life regarding it, then I'm being, uh, if not hypocritical, dishonest. That's very interesting. I was actually, uh, it leads right into my next question, which was, what makes religion more than simply having a bunch of opinions about things? I see that a lot in both the secular and the religious circles, that today it's all about, well, here's my list of my opinions about things. I think that uh, religion involves faith, and faith is much more than a set of beliefs or doctrines or claims. Uh, faith includes a worldview, but it's much more than simply a worldview and much more than a pronounced worldview. It includes things like um, devotion and uh, trust and um, courage and hope. And it even includes an element of doubt, because doubt is a cutting edge of faith, authentic faith, 
because I have to constantly be asking myself, is the faith that I have at present adequate to the religious ultimate that I profess and am committed to? And of course, the answer always is, no, it's not completely adequate. It's something like Kierkegaard's statement when someone asked, are you a Christian? He said, no, but I'm always trying to become one. And I think that's the attitude that one has that I call the doubt element of faith, the cutting edge of faith, the growing, emergent character of faith. And if a faith does not have an element of doubt, it becomes fanaticism and idolatry. So what's faith in nature and doubt in nature then? Well, I have written, I think, maybe nine books about religion of nature. And uh, I'm doubtful that any one of them even begins to approximate what I think ought to be said about religion of nature. So that I've done my best to date, but it's not completely adequate. And I know that uh, it could be done much better. So there's always that gap between what one believes, what one says, what one professes, how one lives, and the religious ultimate itself. So the basic idea of religion of nature is for me to serve nature instead of thinking that nature serves me, and for me to regard myself as a humble member of a community of all creatures of nature, doing my best to contribute as well as I can to the health and well-being of nature as a whole. And this is so consuming for me in my vision that I never get around to anything beyond nature or outside of nature. It's complete in and of itself. It's self-sustaining, it's self-surpassing, and it's very humbling. When you talk about that nature has metaphysical ultimacy, I think I can understand that one, but you also talk about its religious ultimacy. Can you talk more about the, those two and how they relate? Well, the metaphysical ultimacy of nature is uh, the idea that there is nothing beyond, outside, or beneath nature. Nature is commensurate with all reality. Now, when I speak of nature, though, I think of two aspects of nature. One is nature as we presently experience it with the present laws of nature, the regularities and continuities that we take for granted. But the other aspect of nature is uh, what the medieval philosophers called natura naturans, nature naturating. That's the dynamic, creative aspect of nature. So that nature doesn't stand still. It's not a static entity. It's a dynamic, processing entity. And for me to have faith in that religiously is for me to be committed to being the most responsible citizen of the community of nature, which includes all living beings within nature that I can, as well as their natural environments. So um, the ethics that I profess in religion of nature is an ecological ethics, a subset of which is human ethics. In other words, we have responsibilities to one another, but we also have very fundamental responsibilities to nature as a whole, as a, a biosphere, as an ecosystem, as a whole here on Earth. And uh, we have to have a concept of nature that is adequate to the majesty and the massiveness of nature, because nature is not focused upon the earth or upon human beings. 
It is 91 billion light years across with hundreds of billions of galaxies, hundreds of billions of stars, who knows how many planets, asteroids and comets and so on. So it's not all about us. So part of the religious faith of religion of nature is a tremendous sense of humility on the one hand and gratitude on the other hand for the amazing thing of being a part of the system of the universe. So does nature or evolution have a goal or a purpose? And what does it mean for something to have a goal? Well, I think you and I have the goal now of participating in this process, this interview. And uh, human beings have many purposes and goals to guide their life. Whom shall I marry? Where will I go to college? What shall my career be? What shall I do this morning when I get up? And what do I think about what I did yesterday? And so on. And animals, too, I think, especially the more complex animals, have purposes by which they live. And the Greek word for it is telos, and the plural is tele. So they're tele all over nature, including but not uh, confined to us. And does nature as a whole have a telos, or an end, or a goal that it steers toward? And my answer to that question is a Darwinian answer, no. It branches out in many different ways, but it's not intent upon achieving some goal or end off in the future. And here I differ with uh, other people who would talk about evolution as having some final consummation or goal. Yeah, I think that's uh, contrary to current Darwinist understanding, right? Well, the way I would put it is there are plenty of purposes in nature, but no purpose of nature. So purpose or goal would require agency then or consciousness? Um, Not necessarily the kind of consciousness we associate with humans, but some degree of sentience or uh, even of adaptability in the case of plants. Plants are pretty ingenious in the ways they adapt to their environments. Do we want to call that purpose? No, but we might call it goal or end that the plant has by nature. So if we were to um, take this kind of discussion and say, what does this mean for my life today? Like, like I'm just going to go to work. I'm going to, you know, try to get through the day, lunch and stuff, talk of goals and telos and things like that. Because for a lot of people, their goals for their life, uh, they will take, they will find it in the, the will of a deity. And that's, that's how it um, determines what their life should be like, but we're saying that nature and evolution doesn't have that for you. So what does that mean then for my daily life? Well, I find in my daily life I have lots of purposes and goals, regardless of whether or not nature as a whole has a purpose or goal. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people assume that in order for there to be purpose in the universe, there has to be a purpose conferred upon the universe from outside of it. That makes mm-hmm. everything else purposeful. But I don't see the need to uh, believe that or accept that view. And furthermore, I think that this religion of nature that I'm talking about might have very profound meaning for people who do not find particularly convincing the traditional dualistic model of God in the world, where God is pure spirit, 
and we have a spiritual aspect that will also embody, and that someday we will return to our true home as a true spirit in the image of God with God. Um, our home and religion of nature is here. We can affirm this as our home, and we can live very purposefully and with deep meaning and purpose in this universe, it seems to me. And uh, if you find that you are convinced that there is such a thing as God, and you're con convinced that you're communicating and relating to God, I'm fine with that. I'm a religious pluralist. I don't affirm that my religious perspective is the only possible one. Anyone who affirms that is a fool, it seems to me, because religion is so complex and uh, there's so much mystery built into it that any religious perspective that doesn't acknowledge that, it seems to me, is inadequate. And that's why I talk so much about doubt as an essential part of an authentic faith. And this would be analogous to the notion of idolatry, where you confuse the relative with the absolute. For me, the absolute is nature. Everything that we're able to say about it religiously or do about it religiously is an approximation to that absolute. So if we were to take that prescriptive of uh, setting our center of uh, concern outside of ourselves and from the point of view of all of nature, the, I guess the inevitable question becomes, why should a person agree with that? You know, what, what would make them, you know, say, okay, I agree with that and I'm going to live that way. I'm going to do that. Especially I'm, I'm thinking about, I know you've written on the problem of evil and that, um, this sort of naturalist view also has a similar challenge in that there's a lot of, uh, things in nature that are undisputedly opposed to our wishes and aims natural disasters, deformities, disease. With these being a part of nature, what do you say to those who might question whether it should be a subject of veneration as a whole? How do we make peace with that? Well, one thing I'd say about that is that I don't know of any ultimate religious object, whether we're talking about Buddhism or Taoism or Christianity or Islam or Judaism or Confucianism or Shintoism and so on, where the religious object, whatever that may be, has to be recognized to have ambiguity attached to it, a great deal of ambiguity attached to it, at least from a human perspective. Because if the religious object is nature itself, or a being outside of nature that created nature, uh, it's going to be implicated in all the ambiguities of nature. Now, when the God of the Jewish Bible created nature, God said, it is good, and it is good despite all of its ambiguities that are built into it and have to be built into it. And that means that God is responsible for those ambiguities. So somehow the ambiguities are worth the creation. In other words, God being infinite can only create that which is finite, and uh, nature is finite in the sense that the present face of nature is derivative from early faces of nature. Nature is infinite temporally, but it's not infinitely good from a purely human moral perspective, mm -hmm. nor is it purely good from the standpoint of the prey that is preyed upon by the predator. It's not good from the standpoint of the prey to be eaten, alive, torn to pieces, 
in order that the uh, predator can go home and feed his or her family. So there is ambiguity built into nature precisely because nature is a dynamic system that I talked about earlier. All creation is at the price of destruction. Creation and destruction go hand in hand. Now, if you think even of the present moment of time, in order for me to have this present, I have to leave the immediate past behind. The immediate past, at least aspects of it, are destroyed in order that the immediate present can come into being. So that nature is an arena of ambiguity precisely because it is an arena of conflicting goods. And conflicting goods involve that some are going to lose, some are going to gain, at least in the short range. But that ultimate arena, I mean, that that arena itself has our veneration because it is the very thing that makes all life possible, including ourselves and all of our goals and everything else. That's right. Without these conflicts of goods, without these natural laws, without even the human freedom that you and I have, nature could not be what it is. Um, the natural laws are sometimes going to get in the way. You step off a precipice and fall mm-hmm. a thousand feet, you're going to die. And uh, there is disease because other organisms are seeking to live, and they live off of us, so to speak. Uh, sometimes you have a symbiotic relation, but sometimes you have a destructive relation. And uh, this is built into the very nature of nature. It's built in, I would contend, to anything that exists that we can possibly understand, including God. Job is such a profound book. You see, because God is essentially saying, not I can solve the problem of evil for you, but I can show you why there is a problem. You're too finite to understand everything. (laughs) And hence, because that is our condition that we come into and live in, hence the key phrase of yours, living with ambiguity, which becomes our task. Mm-hmm. So um, let's imagine for a second, imagine we have a listener out there that is currently going through a breakup with a significant other. Um, what what could you say to that listener right now that would express this, this living with ambiguity that one is brought to task to perform? Well, I would say partly that we can't resolve it conceptually, but we can seek to cope with it as best we can. And time does heal wounds. Grief is real. It has to be lived through. And it's uh, unavoidable being the finite beings that we are. So we have to expect that we will suffer some grief, some separation, some loss in the course of our lives. Now, some people suffer it much more than other people. Nature is not fair in the sense that we human beings would like for it to be focusing in on us and our needs. It has many other concerns than us. And if we get in the way of those laws of nature, of the way of the universe, we're going to suffer. So grief is built into life, but it doesn't mean that we despair, because there's more to life than grief and loss. There are other aspects of life as well. So I wouldn't adopt a nihilistic stance. Everything is absurd because people suffer and die in the way that Schopenhauer did, for example. But I also would not adopt a Pollyannish Things are wonderful, and I will never have any problems in this life. We have to be prepared for the reality of suffering, and that's the central truth of Buddhism, it seems to Mm. me. 
and religion yep. major has a lot to learn from Buddha. I, I agree. I, in fact, when you were talking about creation and destruction uh, and looking at the universe in terms of of that more, it sounded very much like a yin and yang kind of approach rather than a good and evil kind of approach. And, and, you know, that same sort of perspective brings about a certain set of prescriptives in the same way for the Eastern religions as it does for us here today as naturalists in that it calls to us to widen our perspective outside of our tiny egos and our small situation and our immediate concerns to a broader view. That's exactly right and well said. So I've been fascinated by the field of complex systems theory, and it's played greatly into my views on spirituality and religious naturalism. I think it helped prepare me to understand some concepts in Buddhism when when I first started learning about it. And you've written about emergence, a major concept in complexity science. Um, can you describe what relevance emergence has for the naturalist? Well, among other things, I would say that nature being the dynamic system that it is, exhibits evolutionary emergence on the face of the earth and all kinds of other kinds of emergence in the universe as a whole. But the evolutionary emergence produces new things that are real. They're not reducible to the earlier stages of evolution. New possibilities arise and new realities come into being. So reality is not just some simple thing that can be reduced to simple things. It's a very complex thing with many levels of reality. So we are emergent beings, and I would contend that we're thoroughly material beings. There is no extra spiritual character of ourselves that is independent of our materiality. I've always liked the part of Alice in Wonderland where uh, Alice said, I've seen many cats without smiles, but I've never seen a smile without the cat. And I've <laughs> seen many material things without mind, but I've never seen mind without materiality, without embodiment. Mm-hmm. So among the things we have to accept are the limitations of our materiality and the glory and the wonder of our materiality. Look at all that matter has done over the years, even on the face of the earth, it has done an astonishing array of things. There are supposedly 10 million species present on the earth today. We're only one of those. Mm. And yet we have all these abilities. But every species is special and has its own special abilities. When we come to terms, I think, with that uh, mortality or, or the fact that we don't get everything we want, uh, I think that's part of the maturing process and certainly central to any kind of uh, cultivation kind of process in a spiritual practice for a naturalist. Yes, I think it is part of the cult- cultivation. And uh, getting back to the earlier question, why would anyone want to be a religious naturalist? One of the central reasons is the current ecological crisis and ecological science that reminds us that we're part of this larger interdependent community. Uh, That being the case, we have responsibilities that extend beyond the human sphere to the natural sphere. And one of the great mistakes of much earlier religion, it seems to me, is a consuming anthropocentrism focusing on humans as though they were the apex of nature, the culmination 
of nature, the focus of nature, the purpose of nature. Well, we're not any of that. We are an offshoot of evolutionary processes. And so we, we can take ourselves seriously, but not so seriously as to think that there has to be a being like us, a kind of human being projected on the sky with infinite uh, attributes in order for things to have meaning and purpose and value. That's not the case. Um, we humans are an offshoot of processes that involve all kinds of chance. It was not purposefully designed. Who knows what other kinds of beings are produced throughout this vast universe? Many of them probably very superior to us in many ways. That's a statistical strong probability. So one of the objections that I have to humanism, and I hope that I will not be uh, interfering with your own stance here, uh, Daniel, is there's too much implication of focus on human beings in a religious stance called humanism. I think that humanism is uh, plausible to the extent that we emphasize the responsibility of human beings to the whole of nature, but it's not plausible if we emphasize human beings as the focus of nature or the focus of religion. Yes, I I totally agree. I've always looked at it as, uh, of course, as you know, the word came about uh, as a way to contrast focus on the needs of humans as opposed to the needs of deities, not so much yes. the the human animal dichotomy, but that's what we think about more today. Yeah. And uh, I've always looked at it as being more about how do we be the best humans we can be, and the best humans mm-hmm. we can be is inclusive of everything we've been talking about. To be responsible citizens of nature is a Yes, best. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, if I had my choice, our episode today would probably be about eight hours long, but (laughs) (laughs) we're already at the end of our time, and uh, it's just been really fascinating and wonderful to have you on. I I really appreciate it, and uh, thank you so much for for being with us today. Don, uh, did you have any upcoming projects that you'd like to talk about to let our listeners know about? Well, I do have these uh, two books that... uh, Daniel mentioned, which are coming out toward the end of this year or the first part of next year. The first one tries to make the case that there's no such thing as consciousness without freedom. And by freedom, I mean genuine freedom, what I call genuine freedom. The ability to act in a causal situation where there are alternatives, real alternatives for choice. So I'm not simply determined to do what I do but I have alternatives present for me to choose alone. And in order to think, we have to have that freedom. In order to have consciousness, we have to have that freedom to choose among alternatives, defend alternatives, and so on. So ironically, the very defense of determinism presupposes that it's false. So that's consciousness and freedom, the inseparability of thinking and doing. The other one is... um, uh, the extraordinary and the ordinary. And what I've tried to do here is to defend the proposition that you can have a very vitally meaningful religious outlook without conventional miracles. That is, breaking in from outside of nature into nature and producing very unusual occurrences. I argue that there are miracles all around us if we have the eyes and the sensitivity to acknowledge them. And we need to cultivate a medication, meditational stance where we're constantly open to and receptive to the miraculous things in our life. 
and in nature and within us as bodily beings. So the miraculous is not something unusual, it's something very usual, but often overlooked and unnoticed. Yeah, I agree totally. And I could hear that when you were talking about the nature in, with such a uh, sense of awe and, and wonder. You just, it, was, it was present in your voice. And I think a lot of us that, that choose to focus on nature as, as a spirit, as a focus of spirituality end up finding that. Whereas, um, there's often a fear among people who are outside this crowd that, um, if you give up God or if you give up, you know, whatever else, like you're just going to get just, um, gray, blank, ordinary nature. But yeah. it's so the opposite. It's so much more amazing once you start looking at it and just be like, what? All of this came without design? That's awesome. And start with your own body. You don't even want to look around you. How many times has my heartbeat in my 84 years of life, how many breaths have I taken? I mean, I've been tremendously sustained by natural processes. That's miraculous. But it's so ordinary, so conventional, you know, it's here all the time. We tend not to notice it. So we shouldn't take it for granted. We should have this sense of awe and amazement in the presence of it. Well, that's a that's a wonderful uh, way to summarize everything. And, uh, again, thank you so much. I hope our, that our listeners will check out those upcoming books and check out your other books. And, uh, like I said, we're going to have links and uh, we can continue the conversation uh, with the read- with the listeners if you'd uh, like to leave comments on our page and um, feel free to join us there. Thank you for listening today, and uh, thank you, Dr. Crosby, for for being with us. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and join our community at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. J.N. Forrest is our technical director, and Daniel Strain is program director. Our hosts are Daniel, J., and B.T. Newberg. Please share our program with others and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today. Today.